Connor to open it up with me to John chapter 12. What do we believe about God? What do we believe about who He is and what He's done? What do we believe about the Trinity? What do we believe about Christ, who He is and what He has done? What do we believe about Scripture? What do we believe about God's Word? What is it? What does it mean for us today? And how are we to understand it? Sadly, many of these questions are not very popular in our day. Who is God? Who is Christ? What is the Scriptures? They're not very popular. They're not very in vogue in our day. They're deemed unimportant questions of no real significance, non-essential, or sometimes even deemed as doctrines that divide. But what we believe about these things is vitally important what we believe about who God is, what we believe about Christ, what we believe about the Scriptures is essential to our faith. Not only because it is what separates us from other faiths, but because it is our faith. That's what we just confessed in the creed. We, with the word creed, credo means to believe. That's what we believe about who God is, about His Word, and about Christ. This is our faith, we can say, in a sense. Not dead statements written a hundred thousand years ago, but a living confession of who we believe God is, what He has done in Christ, and how He has spoken to us in His Word. That we believe in the Trinity, one God in three persons. We believe in Christ, our two-natured Redeemer. We're not modalists. We're not Unitarian. We're not Mormon. We're not Jehovah's Witnesses. We are Orthodox Christians. But why do we believe these things? Why do we believe these things about God, about Christ, and about His Word? Do we believe them because the creeds are these inerrant things that tell us what to believe? Do we believe these things because they were invented by the early church, or do we believe them because it's what God's Word teaches? Do we believe these things because it's what God's Word teaches and necessarily contains? And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at one verse in John chapter 12, and we're going to really use it as a jumping off point to talk about not only how we are to understand Scripture, but how we see the doctrine of the Trinity proclaimed not only in the New Testament, but also in the Old, even though it's shadowy, even though it's veiled. And ultimately, we're going to see how the glory of Christ as the true eternal Son of God is so important to what we believe about God and why it's taught in the New Testament. So I'm going to read a little bit of context here, but we're going to look mainly this morning at John chapter 12, verse 41. I'm going to begin, though, at the end of verse 36. Jesus had spoken to the crowds, and when he had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And though he had done so many signs before him, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. 
Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, here quoting Isaiah 6, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal him, heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. We come before you um, confessing who you are, um, adoring you, the one triune God of the universe. And as we come this morning to your word, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would illumine our minds, that we might be able to see and understand not only the truth and infallibility of your word and the glory of your triune nature, but the glory of Christ, the eternal Son of God who for us and for our salvation came and saved us, not because works done by us, but because of his perfect finished work on our behalf. We pray this morning that as we come to your word, we would be encouraged, we would be strengthened, and that you would help us to see um, what you have for us this morning, that we would be changed from one degree of glory to the next. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So last week we looked at a very heavy, a very sobering topic in the the latter part of John chapter 12. We looked at the hardness of heart, the blindness of unbelief of the crowds that were following Christ. That even though they had seen so many signs done by him, they'd seen so many miracles, they saw him in the flesh, yet they still would not believe in him. They still would not put their saving faith in him. And we saw this is all taking place in fulfillment of what Isaiah said. All the way back in Isaiah 53, quoted there in verse 38, and Isaiah chapter 6. The unbelief of the people, the Jews of that time, the judicial hardening of God, lifting his hand, and their total rejection of the message of the cross. They didn't want this Savior that would come and die for them. They wanted a triumphal king. But we see in verse 41, the, the, the scripture that we'll be looking at this morning, a very profound statement spoken by the Apostle John. Okay? This is the Gospel of John written by the Apostle John. And he says here, this is really this whole, this whole passage, is John's looking back on what was done, what was spoken by our Lord, and interpreting what was going on. And we see here a very profound statement. And so we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at three different aspects as we move forward. The first thing we're going to look at is the context of this verse in John chapter 12. We're going to look at what is is John saying? How is he speaking about the scripture? Why is that important? Secondly, we'll go back to the Old Testament as we look at Isaiah chapter 6 and the vision of Isaiah. And then finally and lastly, we'll look at the incarnation of the eternal Son of God. So first we'll look at the context of John chapter 12. We see in John chapter 12, verse 41, John tells us these words. He says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. We have here John's commentary 
on Isaiah chapter 6, okay? So John, many years after Jesus' death, he is writing this gospel, and he's reflecting back on the events that happened, the events that took place, and he is giving us his commentary, not only on what happened in the life of Christ, but he's commenting and interpreting Isaiah chapter 6. He's looking back on what happened under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and is giving us an infallible interpretation of what Isaiah saw. He's connecting dots from the Old Testament scriptures and showing their fulfillment in Christ's person and work. This is not just John speaking in and of himself, giving his just opinion about what he thinks happened. No, this is God, the Holy Spirit, speaking infallibly through his apostles in the written word of God. And it's important that we remember this as we open up our Bibles, whether it's on a Sunday or just in our own private quiet time, that when we come to the Scriptures, we believe that it is not just man's words, it is not man speaking, but it is God Himself speaking through His very Word, both Old Testament and New Testament. Our confession is clear that the Scripture alone is God's sufficient, certain, and infallible Word. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is breathed out. Theonistos, breathed out by God. And we read in a couple chapters in John 14 that it is the Spirit that will speak in a specific way through the apostles in not only the inspiration, but the inscripturation of the New Testament, that there's going to be a special endowment of the Spirit upon the apostles to write the New Testament. And that Scripture alone is our final authority. It is, on, it is alone God's Word, and it is alone our final authority in all matters of faith and practice. But what's so amazing about this verse is what we have here, we could say it like this, we have a New Testament writer interpreting an Old Testament passage, okay? So this is John, 700 years after Isaiah, looking back on what happened in the book of Isaiah and interpreting it in light of Christ. He's not reinterpreting what Isaiah saw. He's not inventing a new meaning that didn't exist, but he is infallibly interpreting Scripture itself, He's infallibly interpreting Scripture itself, saying that that Isaiah saw was this, okay? So what we have here, we could say really simply, is Scripture interpreting Scripture. Scripture giving us the full meaning of Scripture itself. Or as some of the Puritans would say, the, or I think this is what our confession says too, the Holy Scripture is the unique and infallible ter- interpreter of God's Word, The Holy Scripture, speaking to us in the Scripture, is the only infallible interpreter of God's Word. You and I are fallible interpreters. Infallible means unable to err. Fallible means able to err, (laughs) okay? So you and I can err when we come to the Word. We We can read something and we can think, well, it might mean this or it might mean that. We could be right or we could be wrong. But when God the Spirit speaks to us in His Word, about His Word, He is telling us infallibly what it means. 
God is not an fallible interpreter. He is infallible, right? And so this principle is that the Holy Scripture speaking to us in the Scripture, sorry, the Holy Spirit speaking to us in Scripture is the only infallible interpreter of Scripture. Not me, not you, not the church, not the magisterium, right? The Roman Catholic magisterium, but God alone is the infallible interpreter of His Word. And this also means what one, um, one theologian said, that the best interpreter of the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit speaking to us in the New Testament. The best, how, how do, have you ever thought, how do I understand the Old Testament? How do I understand, there's a lot of strange things, there's a lot of things that don't make sense to us. What's the best way for me to understand the Old Testament? It's by listening to God speaking to us in the New and telling us what it means. Later revelation making explicit what was only implicit in prior revelation. Why do I say all this? That's very technical. It's very kind of maybe seems unimportant. But as we come to John's word this morning in John chapter 12, verse 41, we are not coming to the fallible words of men. We're not coming to just John's opinion, but we are coming to God's infallible word. Not John the Apostle inventing a new meeting that wasn't there, but rightly understanding what was always there. And that's going to be important as we move forward. That John is telling us that Isaiah saw these things, the things that he saw in Isaiah chapter 6, because Isaiah saw his glory. Isaiah saw his glory. But the question that is probably on our minds is, who is the he that is being referred to in John chapter 12? Whose glory did Isaiah see? Before we understand that, we must go to Isaiah chapter 6. So if you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, we'll look now to our second point, the vision of Isaiah. That in John chapter 12, John is quoting from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And we read in Isaiah 6, Isaiah's vision of the Lord. As Daryl read this morning, the prophet Isaiah was given this glorious vision of the Lord in all his holiness and in all his glory. We read there about the seraphim falling down before him, covering their faces, covering their feet in the presence of the holy God. And we see that Isaiah, in, in verses 1 and 2, or verses 1, he sees the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, remember those words, high and lifted up, and the train, or we could even translate it, the glory of his robe fills the temple. And that even the angels, the burning ones, the seraphim, must hide their faces as they cry out to the thrice holy God, who is not just holy, but is holy, holy, holy. We see in this passage the holiness and the glory of Yahweh, the covenant name used of God in the Old Testament, revealed to Moses in the burning bush when he says, I am that I am. This is Yahweh. This is the Lord. It's often rendered as in our Bibles as four capital letters, L-O-R-D, Lord, this is the God who is, Yahweh, 
this is who Isaiah saw. Nothing less. One commentator said, this is one of the sublimest descriptions of the manifested Lord found in all the Old Testament, right? There's almost no other place you could go where someone is given such a vision of the glory and holiness of Yahweh. And if you were to ask Isaiah, who did you see? He would say, I saw the glory of God. I saw the glory of Yahweh. The one who alone is high and lifted up, the Lord of glory, the creator of all things, the one true and living God who is infinite, eternal, unchanging, incomprehensible. As he says in verse 5, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But what's so amazing is that when we come to the Gospel of John, John tells us that the glory that Isaiah saw was not only the glory of the Father, but the glory of the eternal Son. That the glory that Isaiah saw was not only the glory of the Father, but the glory of the eternal Son. That when John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, he was speaking about the glory of Christ, the incarnate Son of God. That the glory that Isaiah saw filling the temple was nothing less than the glory of God. And John says that that was the glory of the Son. (laughs) That was the glory of the Son. Not only revealing to us the doctrine of the Trinity, even in the Old Testament, but proving without a doubt the full divinity of Christ, the Son of God, who is not created who did not come into existence at his birth, was not a mask that God the Father put on in the incarnation, as the modalists believe, but a distinct divine person, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. The eternally begotten Son of God, the second person of the triune God, who is the fullness of him who who in the fullness of time took on flesh. This is the glory that Isaiah saw. We could say it like this, that to see the glory of God as Isaiah saw is to see the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. To see the glory of God is to see the glory of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons, blessed Trinity. The one God seated upon his throne to whom the angels and seraphim cry out, not just holy, but holy, holy, holy. But why is this so important? Why does this matter that we understand what John is saying in John chapter 12? That brings us to our third point this morning, the incarnation of the eternal Son the incarnation of the eternal Son. It matters because the one who the crowds rejected in our passage, the one whom the Pharisees would seek to arrest and kill, the one whom Judas would betray with a kiss, and the one who would be put to death on the cross was not just a man, but he was the eternal Son of God. (laughs) He was the Son of God incarnate, the eternal Lord of glory. 
that it's important for us to understand that this morning, that the eternal begotten Son of God takes upon Himself flesh in the incarnation. As we've said so many times, He became what He was not, never ceasing to be what He always was. Jesus did not stop being, or the Son did not stop being God at His birth. He did not lay aside divine attributes, divine prerogatives, or divine privileges, but rather He assumed our nature, taking it to Himself, taking to Himself our poverty. That this is what we read in John chapter 1. That the Word who was in the beginning, who was with God, distinct from the Father, but who was God, also takes upon Himself our nature in the incarnation, takes on flesh. That if you go to John chapter 1, verse 14, listen to these amazing words connecting the incarnation and the glory of the Son. John says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The same glory that Isaiah saw. Glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's not a different glory. It is the same glory that the glory of Christ is the glory of God. And yet, in his state of humiliation, his glory was veiled. In his state of humiliation, his time on the earth... His glory was veiled. Not only the physical luminosity that was veiled, right? right? We see that in the transfiguration, His glory is unveiled. His clothes shine like the glory of the sun. Not only was His glory veiled in this physical luminosity, but we see the true glory of the person and work of Christ was veiled to those that did not believe in Him that they could not see His glory, His worth, His value. They could not see His true glory. Blinded to the true light of the world and hardened in their sin, the crowds, the people, and anyone in unbelief walks with a veil over their eyes to the true glory of the Son. And as we talked about last week, that this is us apart from the work of the Spirit. That if God does not act, if the Spirit does not illumine the eyes of our hearts, then we remain in our sin. Blinded in our eyes, hardened in our hearts, loving the darkness, hating the light, lost in our sins and trespasses, and like Isaiah before the holiness of God crying out, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. But as we saw in Isaiah, that a way of atonement is made, and that in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son in flesh to make a way of redemption, a way of atonement for God's people. That this one who was eternally God would also come to take on flesh and to die to make a way for God's people to be made right with Him. That the same one here, whom the crowds rejected, was the one who would suffer terrible agony in His body on the cross, taking the fiery judgment of God's wrath so that we might draw near to Him and not be burned, right? 
Isaiah gets a cold touch to his lips. It's this burning fire that does not hurt him. And in the same way, Christ took the fiery judgment that we deserve so that we might draw near to God and not be burned. Our guilt taken away, our sin atoned for. But as we go to the end of the gospel, we see that even though his body was placed in the grave, it did not remain there. (laughs) That he was raised in a glorious resurrection. That the glorified Son of Man upon his resurrection, the second and last Adam, did not remain in the state of dead, but was raised in a glorious resurrection. Ascending to the right hand of the Father, into heaven itself, sitting down on his throne, and there ever living to make intercession for his people. This is the Lord of glory, who upon his resurrection received all authority, all glory, all honor, all power. This is the glory of Christ. And as we confess this morning, he did this for us and for our salvation. This is why the eternal Son of God takes on flesh for us and for our salvation, doing everything that we could not, suffering the death that we deserve so that we might be made right with him. And that the glory Isaiah saw all the way back in Isaiah 6 was nothing less than the glory of the eternal Son, the same one that John saw with his own eyes. And so as we walk away from our passage this morning, there's a couple things I want us to reflect on and think about. The first one is this. The first one is the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity. That we see that the doctrine of the Trinity is not something that was invented by the early church. It's not something that was created by the creeds of Nicaea or Chalcedon. And it's not something that is a New Testament innovation that's somehow pulled out of thin air by the apostles. But rather, it is the reality veiled in the Old Testament and brought into full light in the New through the redemptive missions of the Son and the Spirit that we see in our passage the doctrine of the Trinity even in the Old Testament. Right? And this is not the only place you could go. You could go to Psalm chapter 2 that says, kiss the Son. Right? There's this idea of the Son. You could go to Psalm 22 where we read about this righteous sufferer that would suffer for the sake of his people. You could go to Isaiah chapter 6 and see the three times holy God who stands before Isaiah. Or you could go to Isaiah 53 where we read about the suffering servant who is also high and lifted up. It's kind of interesting if you have your Bibles open. If you go to Isaiah chapter 52, it's right before Isaiah 53. We've seen Isaiah 53 echoed throughout John chapter 12. We've seen it in so many ways. He's borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. We see him troubled in his soul. We see all these passages, and literally John, I mean, Isaiah, John quotes Isaiah 53 for us in, in our passage. But if you go a couple verses before to Isaiah 52, verse 13, listen to what Isaiah says about this servant who's going to come that's going to suffer for his people. What does he say? He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely, and he shall be high and lifted up. (laughs) 
He shall be high and lifted up. That the one from Isaiah chapter 6, who is Yahweh, who alone is high and lifted up, Isaiah says that that's the servant of the Lord as well. (laughs) So we see that even within Isaiah himself, confirmation that the servant of the Lord, the one who's going to take on flesh and suffer for his people, is nothing less than very and eternally God. (laughs) This is amazing to contemplate and think about. That even within Isaiah, this idea is present. And so when we come to the New Testament and we see the Holy Scripture, the Holy Spirit, infallibly interpreting Isaiah chapter 6 and confirming this, we see that the Old Testament, as B.B. Warfield famously said, it's kind of like a room filled with furniture and dimly lit. And the light of the New Testament shines the light and shows us all the things that were there before. The New Testament isn't adding new things to the Old Testament. It's showing us what was always present. That Isaiah spoke of Christ. He saw the glory of the Son who is one with the Father and the Spirit. But it's important for us to remember that this doctrine of the Trinity is no dead doctrine, okay? It's no dead orthodoxy. But as our confession said, it is the very foundation of our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon Him. It's our very foundation of our communion with God and our comfortable dependence upon Him. How can we know about the eternal love of God? How can we know the eternal plan of redemption that God has set in motion for sinful creatures? How can we experience communion and fellowship with a holy God apart from the work of Father, Son, and Spirit? And the answer is we cannot. We cannot know the eternal love of God. We cannot experience communion with Him apart from the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father planning our redemption, the Son being sent and accomplishing our redemption, and the Spirit being poured out and applying redemption to the souls of His people. And this should change how we think about ourselves, how we think about our communion with God. It should change our prayer life. Our prayer life should be Trinitarian in nature. It should change how we read the ancient creeds of the church. It should change our communion and fellowship with God. But the second thing we need to see this morning is we need to behold the glory of Christ. We need to behold the glory of Christ. That I think for many of us this morning... We're weighed down by things, various things that are going on in our life. Maybe we're weighed down by the world. Maybe we see the effects of our sin, not only in our own heart, but the effects our sin has on others. Maybe we're tired. Maybe we're anxious about life and the world around us. Maybe we're discouraged by our walk with the Lord and we're not seeing the fruit that we wished we would see. And we can think to ourselves, Can God really change me? Can God really change me? Can I really overcome this sin in my life that I'm seeking to overcome? Can a holy God really love me? Can He really forgive my sin? Can He really help me? Can I overcome this addiction? Can I have peace with God? Can I really be welcomed into His family? Can I really and truly be transformed? And I think we can be tempted in many ways. Maybe we're tempted to just give up. We're tempted to give up. We're tempted to look at the world around us and say, there's no hope. 
There's no hope for me. There's no hope for change. There's no hope for transformation. Maybe we do this by numbing ourselves with entertainment and things that occupy our minds so we don't have to think about it. Maybe we just do these things so hopes that our problems will go away. Or maybe we think that in order to really transform, be transformed, we need to have the same vision that Isaiah had. We need to have this ecstatic external experience that will somehow transform us and bring us new faith. That if I could just have the experience that Isaiah had, or if I could just have this experience or that experience, then I would be truly transformed. If I could just see the glory of God physically, like Isaiah saw, then I would be changed, then I would be made new. But what's so amazing, as we go to the New Testament, and we see the Apostle Paul speaking to the Corinthians, who were also tempted to seek after external glory. They were seeking to to go after all these external things. He shows them that it is actually the message of the gospel, the preaching of Christ, and the proclamation of the new covenant that is the way God's people behold the glory of the Lord. That as we behold the glory of Christ in the gospel with the eyes of faith, that is how we are truly changed and transformed. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. That is how God's people are transformed. Not by white-knuckled obedience, not by seeking to obey the law perfectly, but by beholding the glory of God in the gospel of what Christ has done. Looking not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. Or we could say it like this. The glory that Isaiah beheld in his heavenly vision of the Lord is the same glory we behold in the gospel of Christ. It's nothing less, except we're not looking with physical eyes or a vision, but we're looking with the eyes of faith, looking and believing in what Christ has done. And what does Jesus tell Thomas? Blessed are those who believe and do not see. And that's what we're called to this morning. Looking to Christ, who was very man and very God, our only perfect and sovereign mediator. And that's why it's so important for us to believe in the two natures of Christ, that he was both truly human and truly God. One of the catechisms says, why must the Redeemer be truly human? That in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the law of God and suffer the punishment for human sin. That's why he had to become man. But then it says, why must the Redeemer be truly God? Why was it essential that the one born in Bethlehem be also very and eternally God, the eternally begotten Son of God? Why must the Redeemer be truly God? That because of his divine nature, his obedience and his suffering might be perfect and effective, (laughs) might be perfect and effective, that we need someone who could do everything that we could not perfectly. But not only that, it must be effective because he is very and eternally God, who is in heaven now interceding for us on our behalf so that we can be in glory with him forever. 
We have hope in Christ because He is our two-natured Redeemer, ever living to make intercession for us, and who is there in the heavenly temple, pleading on our behalf by the merit of His blood. That's our hope this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the glory of Christ, that as we behold You in the gospel and what You have done for sinners like us, we, like Isaiah, are undone. And we are tempted to cry out, woe is me, and remain there. We're tempted to see your holiness, your splendor, your glory, and say there's no way that a holy God could forgive my sin, could cleanse my iniquity, could cover my guilt. But because of what Christ has done in his perfect life, death, and obedience, we have a way of salvation. We have true peace with God by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And by his perfect work, him taking our sin upon himself and giving us his perfect righteousness, we might have a way of salvation, redemption made for a sinful people, the glory of Christ in the gospel. And as Paul says, unless the light of Christ shines in our hearts, we remain under a veil, hardened in our sin and in our blindness. And we ask and pray this morning, Lord, that by the work of your Spirit alone, you would shine the light of the gospel into our very souls and that we might see the true glory of Christ, the eternal Son of God, who for us and for our salvation took upon himself our nature so that we might be redeemed. We ask and pray that you would minister to us by your spirit, that you would change us, Lord, that we would not remain where we are at, but we would be changed from one degree of glory to the next as we behold the glory of the Lord. We ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.